I want to take you back to 1993 to really appreciate and understand the dilemma that we faced as lawyers. Jackson attorney Carl Douglas, speaking at an event for the Los Angeles County Bar Association in 2010. 1993 was before the internet, before YouTube, before TMZ. It was before what has now become known as checkbook journalism. The press are relentless and their relentlessness was no more greater demonstrated than with the zeal with which they pursued the Michael Jackson matter. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 4, Like a Ton of Bricks. Hey, Omar. Oh, hey, Bob. This is Omar Crook, Telephone Stories co-producer. So catch me up with this Chandler Jackson thing again. The last thing I remember um, we were talking about was Jordy sitting in his dad's dental chair or something. Right, right, right. right. So to get to recap to that, Jordy Chandler, his mother, June, and Jordy's half-sister, Lily, spent pretty much all of spring and then the early summer with Jackson hanging out at Neverland going on shopping sprees, and then to Las Vegas, where he and Jackson slept in bed together for the first time. And then in Monaco for the World Music Awards, where Jordy later said that he and Jackson made their first sexual contact. So Evan Chandler, Jordy's dad, who was pretty much out of the loop, started to become suspicious. And after inviting Jackson to stay at his house, he discovered they were sleeping in the same bed. He gets upset Everyone tells him that he's being crazy, and Jordy and Jackson stop talking to Evan. So Evan's kind of like, what's going on? I want to sit down with everyone and sort this out. He starts talking to Jordy's stepdad about it on the phone, starts leaving weird voicemails for June, and then he gets this lawyer, Barry Rothman, to draft up a modified custody agreement. Oh, is this that, um, what was he called, the, this nastiest son of a nastiest bitch? Nastiest son of a bitch, right. right. As he was called by Evan, the nastiest son of a bitch I could find. So this first modification of custody gave temporary custody of Jordy to Evan for one week, and it prevented Jordy from going on tour with Michael Jackson. Right, so this is the one that she signed, is that correct? Yes, according to June's transcript from the 2005 criminal trial of Jackson, the separate trial that was prompted by accusations from another boy, Gavin Arvizo. There on the witness stand, June testified that Jackson encouraged her to sign this first modification of custody of Jordy in 93. Right. Got it. Okay. So then after June signs it, Jordy was with Evan for that one week. And during that time, Evan took Jordy to get a tooth pulled. And at his dental office, uh, Jordy confessed to him or alleged to him that Jackson had been touching Jordy's penis. Right. In the dental, in, in this dental chair, right? Very questionable. Yeah, it was under anesthesia, so kind of questionable circumstances. So why didn't Evan Chandler go to the cops if he suspected and supposedly had confirmed this already with uh, Jordy? That's a great question. According to Raymond Chandler, Evan's brother, not the mystery writer, in his self-published book, All That Glitters, told Evan the following... Read here by actor Wyatt Gray. I thought about going to the cops. I thought about it a lot. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized no good would come of it. It was Jordy's word against Michael's. 
Maybe it would play against the man on the street, but never against the world's best love advocate for children. But it wasn't just that. I was concerned there'd be a storm of publicity, and I didn't want to expose Jordy to that kind of pressure. It would embarrass him terribly and quite possibly be more traumatic than what he'd already been through. Man, I really don't agree with that logic, but I get it. I mean, I understand his thinking. Uh, especially when you kind of considered that he's seen Jordy and Jackson together and kind of began to believe that perhaps they were in love. I mean, that's an awful thought for sure. Um, so after Jordy disclosed all of this stuff to his father, what happened after that? Well, then Evan had Barry Rothman, the nasty son of a bitch, draw up a second modification of custody for Jordy. This one was totally different. It would have changed completely the custodial parent from June to Evan hmm. and severely restricted her visitation rights. And it would go one step further than the previous custody agreement from disallowing Jordy to leave L.A. County. You know, obviously means he can't visit Neverland, but it would cut off all contact with Jackson. Wow. So. Raymond Chandler, Evan Chandler's brother, wrote in his book that June refused to sign this document at the behest of David Schwartz, uh, Jordy's stepdad. This is Renarek Schwartz, they called him. Right, right Renarek Schwartz. Mm -hmm. At that point, or at some point, according to Raymond Chandler's book, David Schwartz and Evan Chandler got into a screaming, shoving match that nearly devolved into a fist fight. Oh, boy. Okay. So then June goes to a lawyer, this guy Michael Freeman, and Raymond Chandler writes that Freeman called and then reamed out Evan Chandler's attorney, Barry Rothman. That nasty son of a bitch. The nasty son of a bitch. Great job. <laughs> Freeman then filed papers. He went to court on behalf of June and got the judge to compel Evan to return Jordy to June. Got it? Uh, I mean, kind of. It's not really. It's a, it's a lot. It's, a, it's kind of a big... It's a know. clusterfuck. Yeah, exactly. So in the middle of that... Now, be aware, no outright accusation has been made yet by Evan. Jackson's lawyer, Burt Fields, had begun working as a sort of intermediary for custody of Jordy. But Burt wasn't June Chandler's attorney, is that right? Again, clusterfuck. According to Maureen Orth's reporting in Vanity Fair, Burt Fields said his point person in the matter for Jackson thus far was his private investigator, a dude named Anthony Pelicano. Yeah... Tell me again who Anthony Pelicano is. I mean, I've heard his name a million times. Anthony Pelicano first made his name in L.A., helping make drug charges against automaker John DeLorean disappear. This is a clip from CBS Sunday Morning, reported here by Jerry Bowen in 2006. Playboy magazine lionized the Chicago native as a wizard, America's most tenacious private detective. In a town of outsized egos and incomes, Tony Pelicano was the go-to guy to take care of life's annoying problems. Anthony Pelicano grew up in the roughneck Cicero neighborhood of Chicago. He opened a PI firm in 1969, and according to Los Angeles Magazine, he billed himself as a kung fu master, bragged about carrying a Louisville slugger in the trunk of his car, and played up the notion that he was a mobbed out Goomba. He got famous for, sort of, solving a case that involved the grave robbing of one of Elizabeth Taylor's husbands. Okay, so Anthony Pelicano is a sort of like tough guy, wannabe PI to the stars, and working for Burt Fields. Yeah, but I know Anthony was working very hard on the case. Uh, and by the way, he was a terrific detective, Anthony Pelicano, for 
whatever people may say about uh, wiretapping. Entertainment attorney Burt Fields. He just was the best detective I ever had. The guy was terrific in his work. And he was working on this very hard. According to Raymond Chandler's book, there were conversations between Evan Chandler, Barry Rothman, and Pelicano about handling the situation out of court. Evan had had enough of courts during his divorce from June. He was especially eager to work things out with some kind of an agreement, but he was threatening to sue Jackson if they could not reach an understanding. On August 4th, 1993, with the threat of that lawsuit hanging over them, Evan Chandler and Jordy met with Michael Jackson and Anthony Pelicano at a suite in the Westwood Marquis Hotel. And I was seated in our big conference room next to Michael. And the father came into the room and saw Michael and went quickly across the room and hugged him and said, Michael, it's been so long since I've seen you, which was just flabbergasting because here's... Here's a father claiming that this man had abused his son sexually and rushes across the room to hug him. Uh, Impossible. Evan's weird hug is also reported by his brother Raymond Chandler in his book, All That Glitters. In author Tara Borelli's account, however, as soon as Jordy saw Michael, he ran to him and embraced him. They kissed each other on the cheeks. Jackson told him, Oh my God, how I've missed you, becoming choked up. Tara Borelli writes. Then, Evan walked over and hugged Michael, too. Raymond Chandler takes up his narrative, relating that the group took seats around a table, and Evan began to talk about how his lawyer, Barry Rothman, had said to him that he had conversations with Pelicano about how they were going to work out a way to reestablish Evan's relationship with Jordy. Chandler writes that Pelicano got defensive and denied ever having said that. According to Tara Borelli, in his biography, Michael Jackson, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, Evan Chandler then pulled out an envelope and produced a report from Dr. Mathis Abrams and read excerpts from it. As he read, Jackson remained calm and Chandler became more agitated. Finally, he shouted, You and Jordy are having sex, aren't you? Just fucking admit it, Michael. Be a man. Admit it. Jackson, remaining calm, told Chandler he didn't have anything to admit to and that the claims were preposterous. As Evan left the room, he vowed to ruin Jackson. You are going down, Michael, he said. When Evan and Jordy were gone, Tara Borelli says, Jackson stood up, walked to a window, and gazed out. He was pale. Tears were streaming down his face. Oh my God, he said over and over. Oh my God. There began to be talks of settlement. And why don't we settle this thing? Former Jackson attorney, Burt Fields. I was very much against settlement. I, I, I felt it would, there's no way to keep it a secret. And if you pay a substantial sum of money, and he wanted a lot of money, uh, no one is ever going to believe you're innocent. Over the following week, according to the LA Times, Evan Chandler's attorney, Barry Rothman, began exchanging calls with Pelicano to discuss a figure for a proposed screenwriting arrangement for Evan, perhaps to take advantage of Jackson's very lucrative relationship with Sony Corp. Wait, what? Okay, so in Evan's mind, since he and Jordy worked together on Robin Hood Men in Tights, 
he thought this would be the best way for him and Jordy to reconnect. In reporter Diane Diamond's book on the Jackson cases, Be Careful Who You Love, she quotes Evan Chandler's log saying that he asked for $20 million to be put in a trust for Jordy and paid out in installments of like $5 million, you know, over however many years. And to that, Pelicano balked and counteroffered with $1 million. Then Barry Rothman, Evans' attorney, said "fuck you" to that, <laughs> and Pelicano came back with three hundred and fifty grand. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's the kind of attorney I want in my corner, to be honest. But um... he also had a tanning bed. I should throw in there, a tanning <laughs> bed in his house. Okay. So my main question, though, in this whole thing, is why are all of these offers going through a private investigator, um, Anthony Pelicano, and not instead of an attorney? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, nothing makes sense in this story, but Pelicano was apparently trying to get Evan to say something that would show he was setting up Jackson for extortion. He told the LA Times, I was trying to set him up for extortion. I wanted to see if he would take it. Wait, is that a, is that a quote from Pelicano? That's a quote. Do it. Can you do it in a mob voice? Uh, it would be like, do it. well, I could do the like... Uh, do it. Brando, you know. Yeah. But I'd, I'd probably do like a soprano. Like, yeah. I was trying to set him up with extortion. I wanted to see if he'd fucking take it. You know, I don't know. That wasn't very good. No, no, that's bad. <laughs> so also by this time, as the dispute heated up, Fields had removed himself from the middle of the negotiations, right? So yeah. he kind of stepped aside. He actually said it. He told Maureen North and Vanity Fair, uh, Fields at this point stepped aside and he said, let Anthony deal with it. So if you remember, there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah. <laughs> June Chandler's attorney, Michael Freeman, filed papers demanding that Evan return Jordy to his mom because he kept him after the dental chair thing. He was only supposed to have him for a week. So right. this was kind of in response to like the second custody agreement that Evan wanted. Right, right. Okay. And so the second modification, it would totally disallow Jordy to see Jackson, transfer custody of Evan completely over to limit June's visitations with Jordy. And from Raymond Chandler's account, Jordy at this point said he wanted to stay with his dad. Okay. I mean, I feel like we're t- like totally jumping around. Give me, give me a timeline. Can okay, you lay, so like, lay is, it out a little bit better? Okay. So this is now we're at August 17th, 1993. Okay. And this is about to be a big day, maybe the biggest day in this whole fiasco, because this is what's called an ex parte hearing in the custody. And there, June's Chandler, June Chandler's attorney, Michael Freeman, got a court order compelling Evan to return Jordy to June. He had filed a declaration from June stating that she signed the prior, you know, the first custody agreement, the one that said she couldn't take Jordy out of L.A. County Mm -hmm. under duress. All right, so the bottom line is that Evan, at that point, had to give Jordy back. He had to give Jordy back because at this point, he's the one who technically is reneging on their original agreement, their original modification. He failed to return Jordy to his mom. But instead of doing that, Evan takes a big swing. Instead of returning Jordy, Evan called that doctor, Mathis Abrams. Okay, who's who is, uh, remind me who that is. So. He's the famed Beverly Hills psychiatrist. Oh, okay. The one that Evan went to? The one that Evan went to, but Evan only gave vague details about an adult celebrity sleeping in the same bed with a minor without disclosing any names, of course. Right. Remember, at this point, it's all anonymous, hypotheticals, because if you name the victim and the perpetrator, the law might require that doctor 
to report to authorities. Right. That's the that mandatory reporting deal. The mandatory reporting deal. And now, seeing no other option, Evan Chandler unburdened himself to Dr. Abrams. He gave the name of his son. He gave the name of the celebrity that he believed was molesting his son. Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. The same morning as the ex parte hearing was taking place, August 17th, according to Maureen Orth's reporting for Vanity Fair, Dr. Abrams interviewed Jordy in person for three hours, privately. It was there, Orth reported, that Jordy Chandler finally gave detailed descriptions of his alleged sexual relationship with Jackson that had occurred over the spring and summer of 1993. That very night, according to Diane Diamond's account and the LA Times, Investigator Ann Rosado from the Los Angeles Department of Children and Family Services, accompanied by two uniformed officers from the LAPD, came to Evans' house and interviewed Jordy Chandler for several hours. Rosado returned the following day with detectives from LAPD's Sexually Exploited Child Unit, Deputy DA William Penzen, and someone from Stewart House, a child abuse treatment program, for further interviews with Jordy's father, Evan, and his then-wife, Natalie. All right, so at that point, did the authorities take um, Jordy out of June's house, like away from her? No. Maureen Orth of Vanity Fair wrote that at first, Children's Services wanted to take Jamie into custody. Who's Jamie? Uh, Well, she used the name Jamie in the story because the child's real name was not yet mentioned in the press, so it was a pseudonym for Jordy Chandler. Oh. Orth goes on, Their report recommended that the mother be questioned about her ability to protect minor, and that the father be questioned about the discussion of money to keep the whole thing quiet, which Jamie had also talked about. Ultimately, Jamie was allowed to stay with his father. Dude, I feel, I mean, I feel pretty bad about the whole thing. Like, Jordy, I feel bad for June, I feel bad for Evan, I feel bad basically for everybody, except they're all idiots, that's the problem. Yeah. Well, shit's really hitting the fan here. And I should say that in the middle of this carnival of idiocy, for once in this goddamn story, the system is actually working like it should. I guess. I mean, but spell it out. In what way? Well, Dr. Abrams was a mandatory reporter, which required he submit concerns about suspected child abuse to law enforcement or child welfare uh, welfare authorities like DCFS. Hmm. He did precisely what the law requires. He reported an allegation of child molestation. And guess what? The authorities responded precisely as the law required. Happened all the time, but in this case, Michael Jackson was involved. And the press is going to get a hold of it, right? Well, yeah, because he's not just some bozo working at Blockbuster. Right. And in Tara Borelli's book on Jackson, uh, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story, his biography, I have to add, this book is stunning and so thorough and has amazing detail. It's absolutely worth reading in the sea of Michael Jackson books that I've read. Yeah, I don't I don't remember talking to Tara Borelli. Did you get him on the phone? or No. Unfortunately, I talked to his agent, who was super nice, and he apologized and said that Tara Borelli's writing another biography. I mean, he writes these massive tomes. You know, the, the Jackson book was huge. It was like a Bible. But there's this one other story in there that he tells that knocked me on my ass. According to Tara Borelli's account, on August 18th, Burt Fields and Anthony Pelicano met with Jackson and told him the bad news. The LA Police Department's sexually exploited child unit had begun an investigation. Oh my God, Jackson said, is my life over? Later the same day, Tara Borelli writes, Jackson was frantic 
and dressed in pajamas and without makeup, and met with a publicist who informed him that there was little doubt he would be questioned by authorities. Michael began to cry, according to Tara Borelli. But I can't answer questions, he said through tears. I can't talk about Jordy. Don't you get it? He's my soulmate. I won't know what to say. Jackson left for Bangkok on August 20th without his soulmate. A search warrant was executed on Neverland Valley Ranch on Saturday, August 21st, 1993. The search was not entirely a surprise. Diane Diamond writes in her book, apparently someone had tipped off the Jackson camp that police were on their way. Diamond goes on that one of Jackson's maids, a woman named Adrian McManus, called in sick that day, but had to be called back to the ranch to unlock Jackson's bedroom door. In another example of detail he presents in his book, author Tara Borelli quotes an unnamed maid saying, people were running around all about the place, employees taking things off the property in boxes and crates as if they couldn't get the stuff out fast enough. They took pillows, sheets, bedspreads, towels, and washcloths. They took boxes of makeup and eyeliner and lipstick and creams and gels. They took stacks of magazines. They took pictures. I remember one person who worked for Michael held up a copy of a photograph and everyone gathered to ask, who is that? Who is that? Is that Macaulay Culkin in his underwear? It is. Then they would take the picture and put it in a box with a lot of other pictures of children in their underwear. I heard them mumbling things like, this guy is nuts, isn't he? When the police came, Terabrelli added, they looked around the room and one of them said, Slim Pickens, I see. The maid added, they knew, of course, they knew. The same day that authorities were serving the search warrant at Jackson's Neverland Ranch, a second warrant was being executed at his Century City condo, the hideout. In a sworn deposition, Jackson's driver, Gary Hearn, testified that he had been instructed by Jackson and Anthony Pelicano to take a suitcase and briefcase from the condo the day of the search, according to the Los Angeles Times, citing sources close to the investigation. Hearn testified that he dropped the items off at Pelicano's home without ever looking inside either one, although it was reported elsewhere that he removed the suitcase and briefcase and other items before the police search. Hearn testified that he had picked up the material late in the day, which indicated it would have been after the police had completed the search. But the LA Times reported that sources said investigators were looking into the possibility that someone had tipped off the Jackson camp from the get-go, since, you know, slim pickings. The LA Times also reported that Gary Hearn testified he had not opened the suitcase or briefcase and therefore didn't know what was inside of them. In Diane Diamond's book on the Jackson cases, she reported that sources close to the Jackson organization informed her that they had contained pornographic magazines and videos. Following the LAPD searches, a case was opened by the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. I got a call that LAPD was investigating this. I was assigned by Gil to handle it, especially because of my background. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss, speaking about her then boss, Los Angeles District Attorney Gil Garcetti. We got the call from LAPD uh, that this was <laughs> that, that they had uh, a complaint that came through, I believe it was a, a mandatory reporter, uh, a therapist, and they were looking into it. 
So uh, what happened was that before Bill was on the case... Former Assistant District Attorney Bill Hodgman. uh, I did what I normally did in any type of case. Uh, Read the reports uh, and set up an interview uh, with the alleged victim in the case. I spent uh, probably a few hours uh, in my office, maybe two, two hours, two and a half hours. We had a which we don't use normally, but we had a, a court reporter there uh, to take down the interview. Usually we don't record uh, these interviews, and I just made make notes. Uh, but this one, uh, we knew this was a special situation, so we, we had it reported. And so I interviewed uh, him, and he was about, it was, if I can remember correctly, 13 or 14 at the time. And he was an amazing kid. Um, I, I really fell in love with him. He was smart. Uh, he was beautiful. He was just personable, just a great, great kid. And uh, I remember not talking about uh, all of the specific sexual conduct, some of it, Uh, But my first interview with him was just the surrounding circumstances, how we met Michael Jackson, uh, what happened uh, over the months after he met him, and uh, we went from there. It should be known here that Lauren Weiss, even more than 25 years later, after Jordan Chandler's name has been widely reported in public, refused to say his name in our interview, preferring only to call him the victim out of respect for his privacy. Sorry, can we cut his name out? I don't want to use his name. Um, yeah, so, well, so you know, every, everybody does. We are using it because in the years since the case unfolded, his name has become common knowledge and was used openly in the 2005 criminal trial. Yeah. Um, but if you uh, want, I, you I can just... I don't want to use it. I don't want to use it. So okay. you can get it. Yeah, you know, it's... Oh, one of the things that was very complicated for us in covering this case. Former LA Times reporter Jim Newton. Full disclosure, Newton is working as a story editor for this project. Was the question of how to protect, or how should we and how far should we go to protecting Jordy Chandler's identity? I even, even today when I say his name, it's with a bit of a flinch because uh, we were really, tried to be really conscientious about not identifying him. Jackson's lawyers later argued with Newton that by not identifying the victim's name, it meant the newspaper was effectively endorsing the victim's allegations. Their position was that Jackson was the victim and that his accusers were blackmailers. I mean, everyone I knew involved in the case knew his name. We just wouldn't say it out loud. Uh, And obviously that meant that other people found out about it. And so merely the fact that we didn't publish it probably didn't provide him a lot of protection. Um, uh, At the same time, it did, I think, have the at least the appearance of our seeming to to believe his story because if we wouldn't have protected him if we didn't have if we didn't invest some credibility in it on monday august 23rd local news outlet knbc ran a story about the search warrants executed on jackson's properties in a criminal investigation into jackson the following day anthony pelicano gave a press conference where he first announced that the charges stemmed from a failed extortion attempt People are always trying to extort him for all kinds of reasons, because he's a superstar, Pelicano told the LA Times. I have worked for Michael Jackson for many years and have gone through many of these. 
The media was scrambling to figure out details of the raid and the investigation. As of yet, there had only been mention of child abuse, not child sexual abuse. But soon, one reporter got a lead. You know, I'm a crime and justice reporter. I did a little stint as a national political reporter in Washington on Capitol Hill and the White House for a while, but it's always been crime and justice for me. Reporter Diane Diamond. So when I moved to Hollywood and worked for the television show Hard Copy, that was my beat. And so it was no surprise when my news director, Linda Bell Blue, came and tapped me on the shoulder. It was late in the afternoon, and she said... The cops are raiding Michael Jackson's house, his houses, one in L.A. and one in Santa Barbara. And I said, the entertainer, the the singer, the ABC kid? And she said, yeah, find out why. Well, uh, okay, that's quite an assignment to start at five o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I'd never done a celebrity story. That was never my beat. But cops was and courts were. And I knew if the police were at his door taking out boxes of evidence, as I was told they were, uh, that a judge had to have approved it. So I got busy and I didn't quite know where to start, to be honest with you. But I walked out into the newsroom and one of those serendipitous moments, my producer, Steve Duran, waved at me from across the big newsroom and pointed to the phone he was talking into, and it was like big okay sign, like, come here, come here. And he was talking to a source who said he could tell us why Michael Jackson's house was being raided, and could we meet. Diane Diamond and her producer drove to meet the source that night at an Italian restaurant. We met in a very tiny, out-of-the-way place in Santa Monica, uh, very dimly lit, and we met this person who carried a manila envelope with them. And... I got to look at it, but the lawyers at hard copy had said, don't take any stolen documents. So I had a notebook (laughs) and I copied over everything I was reading because these were indeed documents I shouldn't have had. They were from Child Protective Services and the police department. And it was a report about a young boy and his parents who were talking about him being molested by Michael Jackson. And it, it struck me like a ton of bricks. When this man gave us this pile of documents, he sp- spread it across a table at me and he said, I just want you to know, we don't want this to get covered up again this time. And that made me sit up and take notice. What did he mean this time? Had there been other times? And he wouldn't really go into that. But it was clear these documents had come from a government agency. And I said, I want to know where these came from. So he took me outside to a coin box, a phone, and we dialed the phone number. And I spoke to the actual source who gave him these documents, talked for quite a while and was satisfied that this I I was satisfied of the um, domain from which they'd come. Let me put it that way. Okay, so where did these documents come from? 
The documents Diamond viewed that night were likely the original report and interviews from the investigators at the Department of Children and Family Services from their August 17th interview with Jordy and the police report from officers that accompanied the DCFS officials. But Diamond wouldn't confirm exactly what they were or who the person was that she met that night. It was someone uh, from a government agency. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. I know you're going to want you're going to ask me lots of things about where did I get my who are my sources but I'm going to be coy every time you ask. <laughs> That's fine. But um, these these documents were Jor- about Jordan Chandler. Yes. And it had the name and the address and the exact accusations and times and dates and places and um, allegations. Not proven, of course, but Child Protective Services was involved. And that um, that gets real serious real fast for people who are making the allegations and for people who are being accused. So between then, that meeting in the restaurant, when did you start reporting on it? We broke it the next night on hard copy. Over the following days, hard copy and other news organizations began running stories on the Jackson investigation. The LA Times wrote about the case now being an investigation into sexual molestation and the root of the claims being a potential extortion plot against Jackson by a Beverly Hills dentist. Toward the end of August, Jackson canceled two shows in Thailand, supposedly due to dehydration. Some reports said he collapsed backstage. At Michael Jackson's hotel this morning, flowers, gifts, and get-well messages poured in. Mark Austin, here reporting for CNN. But soon came the announcement that the beleaguered singer had postponed his Bangkok show yet again. At a hastily arranged press conference, concert promoters played a taped message from the superstar's sickbed. I'm sorry for not performing yesterday as I am really sick and still under medical treatment. I have been instructed by my doctor not to perform before Friday, August 27, 1993. I will see you all on Friday. I love you all. Goodbye. According to the LA Times, by the end of August, Anthony Pelicano had distributed tapes of calls between Evan Chandler and David Schwartz that he used to illustrate his point that Evan was trying to extort Michael Jackson. Pelicano played the tapes at a press conference, and they were aired around the world. Here, a clip from CBS News. This man is going to be humiliated beyond belief. I'm not going to believe it. He will not believe what's going to happen to Beyond, it's beyond his worst nightmare. So one more record. Oh, shit. This is from the phone calls Evan was making to uh, David Schwartz. Is that right? Yeah, and these were long calls, like 200 pages of transcripts. Diamond included a lot of them in her book. Remember, Evan was calling Dave back in the beginning of the summer and talking at length to him about his fears about Jackson ripping the family apart. This before accusations and suspicions of molestation. So apparently by July, back in July, David and June Schwartz were upset about Evan being a dick and about Jordy hanging out with Michael Jackson. According to Diamond, Schwartz began recording these phone calls secretly with Evan. Raymond Chandler wrote that Schwartz gave those tapes to Burt Fields and Anthony Pelicano. Pelicano was known to enhance and manipulate tape recordings, according to the LA Times. Here, from CBS, is Evan Chandler from his tape recording, followed by Pelicano. If I go through with this, I win big time. I will get everything I want. There will be great forever. It spells out everything to me that this was a, 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 you know, extortion attempt from the very beginning. It was all planned. The excerpts of the Chandler tapes made it on every major network. 
Evan Chandler, at this point, was only known as the boy's father and a fancy dentist, and it sounded like he was a scumbag extortionist who was trying to frame Jackson for the worst possible crime imaginable. Evan Chandler's attorney, Barry Rothman, who first came on to simply help his dentist file papers in a custody dispute, was now locked in a battle about child abuse allegations, a multi-million dollar settlement with the King of Pop, and extortion. Fearing he and Chandler might be sued for extortion, Rothman hired Robert Shapiro, who would later become one of O.J. Simpson's attorneys in his murder trial. Jackson, who began the case with entertainment lawyer Burt Fields and his private investigator, Anthony Pelicano, soon hired high-profile criminal defense lawyers Howard Weitzman and Johnny Cochran. Weitzman would later briefly represent O.J. Simpson, and Cochran would head Simpson's defense team. So basically a who's who of famous L.A. lawyers. Yeah, and not to be outdone, June Chandler and David Schwartz finally agreed to join forces with Evan Chandler, and in a series of meetings over a few days in late August, they decided to hire Gloria Allred. <laughs> no, come on. Yeah, the famed activist attorney. Allred's strategy was to go public, which didn't go very well. So they hired somebody else instead. Good day. I'm Gerald Goldfarb, your host, and this is the television program Inside Law. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm very happy to have here as my guest uh, an eminent uh, trial lawyer in Los Angeles County, Larry R. Feldman. Good day, Larry. Good day, Gerald. This is a clip from Inside Law with Gerald Goldfarb, a local access interview show that ran in L.A. in the 1980s. Larry is the president of the Los Angeles County Bar Association, has been a member of the bar in California for more than 20 years, uh, graduated from uh, Loyola Law School, was president of the Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Association, and is uh, really knowledgeable and experienced about the LA County Bar Association and about the legal system in California as a whole. All right, so this guy's no slouch. Feldman is uh, the lawyer's lawyer. He's not the guy with an ad on the back of the bus. He's a lawyer that gets cases recommended to him by other lawyers. He represents the biggest lawyers in the world of lawyers. According to one of my sources, Larry Feldman was watching TV one day in late August 1993 and saw this. Documents reviewed by CNN Thursday from the Department of Children's Services reveal the boy told a caseworker his four-month relationship Could with I Jackson escalated from hugs to various sexual acts. Meanwhile, a second family claiming to be friends with the entertainer was introduced to CNN late Thursday by an associate of Jackson's. The associate of Jackson's who arranged the TV interview was none other than Anthony Pelicano. Jackson's child-age friends who appeared opposite a CNN reporter on camera were Brett Barnes and Wade Robson. The prepubescent Robson, dressed in a t-shirt, open flannel shirt, and with a bleach-blonde buzz cut, speaks here. Yeah, you know, there's been different times where it'll just be me and Michael. Then there'll be other times where he has other friends over, too. This is what, like what Brett said, it's just a summer party. We just have a lot of fun. That was a challenging strategy to say, in effect, that Jackson slept with boys but didn't molest them. It caught Feldman's attention. Other observers thought that Pelicano's idea to put the boys in front of a camera did little to help Jackson and perhaps made things worse. A few days after the boys appeared on TV, Feldman received a call to meet with the Chandlers about a new legal strategy. In the first case, in the first young boy case that got settled, that case 
was he was first represented by a lawyer by the name of Rothman. Gloria Allred had him for about 24 hours, 36 hours. <laughs> held her press conference and I was in the Gloria, with all due respect, and then I had him for the balance of that case. This is attorney Larry Feldman from a seminar at the Los Angeles County Bar Association, LACBA for the Nerds, which in 2010 put on an event called Frozen in Time, the Michael Jackson Cases. The engagement featured legal stars from both the 93-94 case and, which we'll get to later in this series, the 2005 criminal trial against Jackson. So, Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, again. In the 93 case, by the time I was retained, this case was the lead story in the LA Times. This case was on, in every uh, local television newscast. The young boy in that case, in the 93 case, had given an unbelievably detailed statement about his relationship with Michael Jackson, how that came about, how the sexual part of it came about. He detailed in great detail the uh, start of the relationship, how it transgressed into uh, more physical activity with Michael Jackson, how it became fondling, how it became oral sex, how it became masturbation. And he gave this whole history in exquisite detail. As related by Diane Diamond in her book, Be Careful Who You Love, Feldman's advice upon meeting Evan, June, Jordy, and stepdad David Schwartz was to define what they had hoped to achieve and get their priorities in order. If the goal was to get money, get Jordy into therapy, and move on with life, fighting a battle with press conferences wasn't the right idea. Robert Shapiro, who was also at the meeting, according to Raymond Chandler's account, explained that if the goal was to see Michael Jackson behind bars, a battle in the press might push District Attorney Gil Garcetti into filing charges. Both attorneys explained to the family the grueling process of a criminal trial, in particular, the impact it would have on Jordy, then, a 13-year-old boy. Feldman added that a battle played out in such a highly charged environment could, in the public eye, paint Jackson into a corner so he couldn't agree to a cash settlement as it would be seen as an admission of guilt. June and Evan Chandler agreed and, as Jordy's legal guardians, retained Feldman as Jordy's attorney. According to Raymond Chandler's book, Evan Chandler and David Schwartz got into a screaming match shouting profanities at each other over how to divide up that money if they ever got it. Chandler slapped Schwartz in the face. Before it could escalate any further, the lawyer stepped in and calmed things down. Scuffles aside, while Feldman orchestrated a legal strategy with the Chandlers, Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss and Assistant District Attorney Bill Hodgman, the prosecutors in the criminal case, were busy looking for leads and getting tips some of them anonymous, one from inside the Jackson family. I had uh, a phone call from uh, first Jack Gordon, who was LaToya's husband, and then uh, he put LaToya on the phone. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss. I talked to him for about five minutes, and he wanted us to commit to not subpoenaing her, that she would talk if she wasn't going to be subpoenaed or taped, and 
And I said, I can't promise that. Um, I didn't tape the conversation. I just took notes. But I have the date of September 2nd, 12.20 in the afternoon. And so Latoya got on the phone. And uh, basically uh, what she said was that her mother, Catherine, knew quite a bit uh, about um, what was going on. And I have a quote here uh, that Catherine uh, Jackson had said, that boy is a fag, a damn fag. And Latoya told me that uh, he had uh, always young boys over the house, and this started in, at Havenhurst. And the boys that she, uh, that she saw with him were between 5 and 13. She said there were a lot of Jehovah Witness uh, kids uh, that, you know, he would spend time with. LaToya Jackson went on to tell Weist that Michael would stay alone in his bedroom with children at Havenhurst for days on end, that food trays would be left outside the door by housekeepers. She said that there were many checks written that the mother saw the checks and showed checks to LaToya. And, uh, and then she said she didn't know the year, but there was a boy whose father was a garbage man. And then I, uh, I have a name, Jimmy Safechuck. As viewers of the 2019 HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland will recall, Jimmy, or James Safechuck, accused Jackson of molesting him over a period of several years in his childhood, while simultaneously lavishing him with jewelry and taking him around the world. Jackson also, according to the documentary, gave money to Safechuck's parents. Safechuck spoke with authorities during the Jordy Chandler investigation, but told them Jackson had never molested him in any way. Um, and that he was not the first that got uh, money like that. And she also, then she brought up the uh, another British uh, kid with blonde hair and a turned up nose by the name of Jonathan. From 1984 to 1987, Michael Jackson was often accompanied by Jonathan Spence, a 10-year-old blonde boy who had went to school with Tito Jackson's sons. According to Diane Diamond's book, Jonathan's father was a screenwriter of some note who left the boy in the care of the Jackson family at Havenhurst so he could work in Europe. Jonathan began spending time with the younger Jackson nephews and took a shine to Michael. According to Diane Diamond's account in her book, throughout the fall of 1984, Jackson and Spence were often seen hugging and nuzzling. Everybody on the set of, their, there was a video they were making, um, knew Jonathan. But Weiss said prosecutors weren't able to speak with Jonathan Spence or with some of the other boys who had been seen with Jackson over the years. We should emphasize that Spence insisted in interviews over the years that Jackson never acted improperly with him. You know, a lot of the kids we, we couldn't get to, uh, you know, and uh, they were either older, we didn't know where to find them. Uh, it, was, uh, it was really a difficult investigation. They did have Jordy Chandler, though, and Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, began to power through with his own tactics against Jackson. On September 14, 1993, Feldman filed a civil suit in Los Angeles Superior Court on behalf of Jordan Chandler, against the singer. It contained a total of seven separate but devastating claims. Case number SC026226, 
complaint for sexual battery, battery, seduction, willful misconduct, intentional infliction of emotional distress, fraud, and negligence. Excerpts of the suit are read here by Los Angeles writer Howie Kramer. Defendant Michael Jackson, with an intent to cause a harmful or offensive contact with an intimate part of plaintiff, repeatedly committed sexual battery upon plaintiff by having sexually offensive contacts with plaintiff. These sexually offensive contacts include but are not limited to defendant Michael Jackson orally copulating plaintiff, defendant Michael Jackson masturbating plaintiff, defendant Michael Jackson eating the semen of plaintiff, and defendant Michael Jackson having plaintiff fondle and manipulate the breasts and nipples of defendant Michael Jackson while defendant Michael Jackson would masturbate. Defendant Michael Jackson gave expensive and lavish gifts to plaintiff, showered plaintiff with care and attention, took plaintiff on trips and vacations, feigned despair and grief when plaintiff rejected said defendant's sexual advances. Said defendant's actions were done for the sole and exclusive purpose of forcing plaintiff to comply with said defendant's sexual demands and other demands so that said defendant could satisfy his lust, passion, and sexual desires. When news of the accusations contained in the lawsuit hit the press, Jackson fans began to harass the Chandlers. Evans' dental office was vandalized, and the Chandler family began to receive death threats over the phone. During this time, hard copy continued to report on developments. So about a week after we first broke the story, reporter Diane Diamond. I started to leave the office, go across Gower Street to my car, and there would be a few people there, young people, asking, are you Diane Diamond? Yes. And then <laughs> screaming and yelling at me, at what a great guy Michael Jackson was and what a terrible person I was and all the way to my car, you know. Every day, then, there were a few more people in this crowd, and it got pretty scary. Diamond soon requested permission to park inside a secure location on the Paramount lot to avoid harassment. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. When you are doing an investigation, you don't tell many people. You tell your producer and maybe your spouse. Um, but there came a time where my information I was getting was coming back to me from the various sources. And I thought, whoa, you know, there's a leak in here somewhere. Is my producer talking? Is is the person who's transcribing my tapes of all my interviews talking? Is it what's happening? And then I thought, oh, my office phone. I mean, Anthony Pelicano, the PI to the stars, had worked on the Paramount lot often. And he was Michael Jackson's private detective. He was a private detective to Michael Jackson's lawyers. And so, I don't know, there's just uh, something clicked in my head. And my husband and I devised this plan that he would call me the next day and he would ask me about the special I was producing on Anthony Pelicano. And then I would give some incendiary answer and we'd see what happened. So the next morning at 9.30, he called me. I was watching my clock. And he called me and, hey, how's that special going on Anthony Pelicano? And I said, oh, man, it's just going to devastate him. He's going to be, wow, he's going to want to hide his head in shame or whatever I said. And I hung up and I watched my clock and about 12 minutes went by. And one of the Paramount lawyers 
came behind me and said, hey, Diane. I said, hey, how are you? She said, fine. Listen, I need to see your script on that special you're doing on Anthony Pelicano. And I said, yeah, I'm not doing a special on Anthony Pelicano. And I wasn't. That was the truth. She said, no, no, I just got a call. You're, you're doing this. I said, where did you get a call from? I got a call from Howard Weissman's office. You know, she said, I used to work there. Well, Howard Weissman, of course, was Michael Jackson's attorney, one of them. So I knew it was either my home phone or my office phone, and I was betting on my office phone. Um, and I told my boss, long story short, we swept everything, my house, my office, my around my house, under my house. Uh, they gave me bodyguards to come to and from work. We had to go a different route every day, The you know, four miles to the office. It was kind of ridiculous. But um, I must say, the Paramount people took it really seriously, and they were very helpful. Former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss also suspected she was under surveillance. You know, I have to tell you, Brandon, I believe my phone was bugged, too. Now that I look back on it and remembering what uh, was happening at the time, because I was living in a, a very funky uh, apartment in Santa Monica, uh, I believe I saw somebody on the phone, phone pole, you know, telephone pole. Uh, but looking back on it, and uh, by the way, I met with Anthony Pelicano. We interviewed him. Uh, and knowing what Pelicano did in all those other high-profile cases and knowing that he was working for Michael Jackson and his team, uh, I'm 100% uh, sure now that my phone was bugged. So where was Michael Jackson when all of that was happening? He was on tour, first in Bangkok, then in Singapore. All the while, he canceled different dates of the shows due to exhaustion or dehydration. At some point, Elizabeth Taylor flew in with her husband to offer support. So was Neverland empty? There's no Michael Jackson there. But all of his employees that were there were interviewed by LAPD and the DA's office. So they all said they knew nothing inappropriate that had happened between Jackson and children. So they wouldn't talk. At least not Jackson's current employees, but he had some ex-employees who were willing to give a mouthful. Mark Quindoy and his wife, Faye, were two commoners who had a special view of this bizarre private world. Doug Bruckner, reporting for Hard Copy. Mark, an attorney from the Philippines, came to America with his wife and worked at Michael Jackson's Neverland Valley Ranch. They were in charge of 30 groundskeepers, 15 armed guards, 10 chambermaids, two zookeepers, and a fireman. The Quindoys appeared on hard copy following a press conference they gave from Manila in the Philippines. Mark Quindoy held up a diary he said he began to keep at Neverland to record the disturbing things he had seen between Jackson and children. According to FBI files kept on Jackson, on September 21st, two investigators from California, Detective Fred Sicard of the LAPD's Child Abuse Unit and Sergeant Deborah Linden of the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Office arrived in Manila in the Philippines to interview the couple. According to Diane Diamond's book, there was another pair of former Jackson employees, Philippe and Stella Lamarck, who attempted to sell their stories about Jackson and child visitors to tabloids, including the National Enquirer. One particular lurid story told by the Lamarcks was that Jackson had fondled child actor Macaulay Culkin. That never got much traction, in part because Culkin vigorously denied it. Other leads, though, continued to pour in from the tabloids. 
former prosecutor Lauren Weiss. Well, that was the most interesting thing for me. Uh, I had done some high publicity cases in the past, and uh, I had never had a, a case like this where I uh, I had to watch all those shows to to learn about things to, to investigate, to have our investigators look into. Uh, hard copy and and shows like that. I don't think there were that many at the time, and it wasn't the same kind of social media as now. But um, but hard copy uh, came up with these amazing leads, and many of them, uh, most of them, turning out to be true. And so we couldn't understand how hard copy was um, was getting their information. And that's one of the reasons that Hodgman and I uh, did not trust uh, LAPD enough uh, to give them information from our investigation. Uh, I I was truly amazed at, at how they dug up their information. Another former Jackson employee who came forward to hard copy claimed that Jackson had acted inappropriately with her own young son. In one particular incident, she described finding Jackson and her son lying very close together inside a sleeping bag in an almost completely dark room watching TV. Mm -hmm. Blanca Francia. Reporter Diane Diamond. Blanca Francia was the longtime, very, very loyal maid, chambermaid for Michael Jackson. She was the only one allowed in his master bedroom suite at Neverland. And we went up to uh, Santa Maria and sat down with this woman and did an interview that I'll never, ever forget. She was scared to death, and she had seen a lot. She told me about cleaning up the bedroom and the jacuzzis, and after Jackson had entertained little boys and picking up little boys' underwear and all sorts of disturbing things. Blanca Franzia told these disturbing things to hard copy and to prosecutors who spoke with her. But Blanca's story was complicated in several respects some of which we will explore when we cover the 2005 criminal trial. For the moment, though, one aspect of the Blanca Franzia account deserves mention. In return for speaking to hard copy, the program paid her $20,000, potentially compromising her credibility as a witness. In fact, that was common practice by the tabloids, and it made the work of investigators much more difficult. I never dealt with any money for hard copy, but hard copy did pay for certain interviews. And they paid her $20,000 because she needed to escape. She wanted to go back to, I think she was from El Salvador, if I'm remembering correctly. Meanwhile, prosecutor Lauren Weiss sought to interview the two boys who publicly defended Jackson that August, Wade Robson and Brett Barnes. Robson, who was interviewed by Weiss, told her nothing inappropriate had ever happened between him and Jackson. So we knew uh, that he had uh, said that he slept uh, with Michael and that nothing happened. And so, and we knew that other witnesses who worked at the ranch had said that they saw strange things uh, going on with this child uh, and Michael. The other boy in the CNN video, Brett Barnes, accompanied Jackson during the first leg of his dangerous tour in 1992. They traveled to London, and to Valencia, Spain, and to France to visit Euro Disney, now called Disneyland Paris. 
In this clip, Jackson and Barnes are greeted in a private ceremony by Goofy, Pluto, Donald Duck, Mickey, and Minnie, many other Disney characters, and an entire marching band. Thank you. Thank you. So we decided that how could the parents of this young boy uh, refuse to allow us to interview him if we flew all the way to Australia? We put together a team, including fellow prosecutor Bill Hodgman and Tom Snedden, the Santa Barbara District Attorney, who was now involved in the case on account of the raid at Neverland, which was in his jurisdiction, but was executed without his knowledge by the LAPD. There were no LAPD personnel. We thought there were a tremendous amount of leaks at the time, and we were not working that closely uh, with LAPD at the time. Weiss and her team flew nearly 16 hours across the Pacific Ocean to Melbourne, Australia. When we got there, uh, it was really a surprise to the family. We really surprised them. We actually just basically showed up there at their house and waited for them to arrive home. And we talked to the parents for a really, really long time. And they just were... Uh, so concerned uh, for their child's welfare, is the way they put it, um, did not want him to become part of a media circus and uh, refused to allow us to, to interview him. We took a shot and uh, we blew it. <laughs> Brett Barnes, now an adult, has always maintained that Jackson never did anything inappropriate with him and steadfastly believes all allegations by Jackson accusers have been completely false. Back in 93, with the DA's case in flux, Jordy Chandler's attorney, Larry Feldman, wasn't taking any chances on whether they had enough evidence to indict Jackson. He wanted a completely unbiased opinion on the credibility of Jordy Chandler's claims, so he put the boy on a plane to New York City. All right, so why New York City? Feldman sent him to an expert. He went to an expert um, that I write about in the book, Richard Gardner. He was, he's a leading authority. Diane Diamond, again. And, and he did a lot of interviews with Jordy Chandler to see if he was lying, frankly. That's why his attorney sent him to him. And he had session after session with him. Do Dr. Gardner said in Jordan Chandler's case, there were stages in the relationship that he would consider to be grooming. First of all, just talking on the phone, having a good time, getting the child to trust him. The second one was traveling with the child, the physical contact, limited physical contact. Again, still building trust with mother and son. And then the some physical touching, some kissing. Jordan Chandler reported that there were some pecks on the cheek and then it became kissing on the lips and then it became full on French kissing. So as you see, the, the grooming and the physical, um, uh, the f physicality of it gets more and more intense. The bottom line to Dr. Gardner, Gardner's report was, this child's not lying. This stuff happened to him. He could not have had this sense of detail being the age he is, without it having actually occurred to him. And I, I had police sources tell me, too, Jordan Chandler was one of the best witnesses they ever had in a child sexual abuse case because he remembered everything. 
He remembered the room numbers of hotels. He remembered the color of the bedspread. He remembered how the drapes were, if there was a sheer underneath or not. He remembered what the bathroom looked like. And, and these police officers went to these hotel rooms and they checked out what this kid was saying. But Feldman wasn't satisfied with just Dr. Gardner's opinion. He then sent videotapes of Jordy Chandler's interviews with Gardner to another doctor, this one in Los Angeles. My name is Stan Katz. I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist. Dr. Katz would later become involved in events leading up to the 2005 criminal trial of Michael Jackson, prompted by another accuser. He also was a witness in that case, and we will, again, be covering that in depth later in the series. So, back in 93, Katz was asked by Feldman to consult on the Jordy Chandler case. So Larry Feldman asked me to consult on the case. We talked about the case. We talked about um, um, Jordan. Um, and then I watched literally hours and hours of videotape that Richard Gardner had made of him. And I formed the opinion that he was credible. I formed the opinion that I did not believe he was fabricating. I formed the opinion that um, that these things had happened to him. Um, and I think that's what Feldman wanted to know from me. All right, so Feldman is really crossing his T's and dotting his I's here. Without a doubt. And was that interview with Dr. Gardner shared with the cops ever or like with the DA or was it submitted to the court or anything like that? Well, just remember Feldman's job was to represent Jordy and his family in the civil proceeding. He wasn't there to help law enforcement. Right. So he really wasn't helping the cops at all. It was just he was just kind of building Jordy's case in this. Yeah, just building the lawsuit, building an arsenal. Okay. So I kind of think I get what's going on. I've it seems like Feldman is gathering ammunition. I mean, not for a criminal trial, but for like a civil case to force Jackson to pay. Right. So he's letting the cops run around in the dark. No, he's letting the cops do their job. On November 8th, 1993, a search warrant was executed at the Havenhurst compound in Encino. Jordy Chandler had never spent time at Havenhurst, and it soon emerged in the press that the search warrant was executed based on law enforcement interviews with five former Havenhurst security guards who had been fired in February of 1993 for, as they claimed, in a wrongful termination suit, knowing too much about Michael Jackson and little boys that had spent the night there. The plaintiffs, Fred Hammond, Aaron White, Leroy Thomas, Donald Starks, and Morris Williams, named Michael Jackson and Anthony Pelicano, the PI, as defendants along with several others. Pelicano, they said, tried to scare them into silence after their termination. Meanwhile, Michael Jackson canceled several more tour dates while in Chile. When the tour reached Mexico City, Jackson canceled another concert due to a toothache, although TV crews caught Jackson the next day smiling as he strolled down a street surrounded by boys. Now, this is more than 24 years ago, so my memory is not always perfectly sharp. Attorney... Carl Douglas, who was working with Johnny Cochran at the time. Michael at the time was represented by Burt Fields and his firm. Howard Weitzman, another colleague, was also on the case. And because there were allegations of both civil and criminal, and I had that experience in the firm, 
Johnny asked me about coming back to the firm. On November 12th, just one day before Jackson was set to travel to Puerto Rico, where he would be within reach of U.S. law enforcement agencies, Jackson canceled the rest of his tour. With nothing left to sponsor, Pepsi immediately terminated its contract with Jackson. I remember because no one knew for sure if there were formal criminal charges against Michael Jackson having been filed then. Howard Weitzman had not asked that question. Mike was kind of like hanging out um, in Mexico wondering what was going to go on because Johnny had worked closely in the DA's office a few years earlier. He was very familiar with the people there and he knew Gil Garcetti very well. And he learned then that there were no charges pending. And I remember Liz Taylor used her private jet to pick up Michael. It was announced in the LA Times that the reason for the cancellation was Jackson's addiction to painkillers. There were, yes, all stemming from the Pepsi commercial. That's where it started. I remember he was in great pain from that, and he never recovered from the addiction that began, I suspect, with the Pepsi commercial burning his hair and, and all of that, and, and, and pain from that that was excruciating. According to Tara Borelli's account, Jackson's mental state was collapsing due to drugs. After Jackson's departure, his five-bedroom suite at the Hotel Presidente in Mexico City was found by housekeeping staff to have suffered colossal damage. Vomit stained the carpets in multiple rooms. The walls had dents in them that looked like they had been created by someone banging their head. Chewing gum was found squashed all about, and scribblings appeared on the furniture and the walls that said, I love you, I love you. Once Jackson attorney Carl Douglas arranged for Elizabeth Taylor and her seventh husband, Larry Fortensky, to collect Jackson, he sent them to Europe. He may or may not be addicted to prescription drugs, depending on who you talk to. He may or may not be the victim of an extortion plot, depending on who you talk to. And Michael Jackson may or may not be in the French Alps, depending on who you talk to. Diane Diamond reported on the story for hard copy. Yesterday, the world was buzzing with reports that Michael Jackson was hiding out in this picturesque ski resort. A Michael Jackson look-alike did show up outside the Charter Clinic in London, sending photographers into a brief frenzy. Sources tell Hardcopy dozens of Michael Jackson look-alikes, decoys, may be roaming around Europe, designed to throw the hordes of reporters off the real Michael's trail. Jackson lawyer Bert Fields held a press conference and said that Jackson was barely able to function on an intellectual level, but would not disclose his whereabouts. Fields added that Jackson has no intention of avoiding coming to the U.S. Despite the overtures to the media and public, it looked like Jackson was hiding from the law. I'm not going to discuss where he is. I don't want you to know. I don't want anybody to know. That was Jackson attorney Burt Fields, who added that. The fact that Puerto Rico was U.S. territory had nothing to do with the decision to cancel the balance of his tour. He could easily have just canceled Puerto Rico if that's what he wanted. Still, to a lot of people, it looked like Jackson was on the lam. At the press conference, another Jackson attorney, Howard Weitzman, spoke. If and when they decide to prosecute him, and if and when they issue a warrant, we'll respond to the warrant. And the inference that he's fled to avoid prosecution is just ludicrous and not true. By the end of 1993, Jackson had gone from 
the height of his powers to the depths of despair. But no public relations, miscalculation, no legal motions, no amount of drugs or tour cancellations wounded him more than his sibling. This is very difficult for me, that Michael is my brother. I love him a great deal, but I cannot and I will not be a silent collaborator of his crimes against small, innocent children. On December 8th, Latoya Jackson gave a press conference in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem. Critic and author Margot Jefferson later wrote in her book on Michael Jackson that Latoya burst upon the world as pop culture's mad woman in the attic. In many ways, Latoya foreshadowed the look that would soon become her brother's. A haunted, gothic-like figure in gaudy wigs, pancake white makeup, and silent film eyeliner. In the Tel Aviv press conference, which is still on YouTube from an old MTV news clip, Latoya Jackson recounted parts of the story that she'd given to Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss three months before. But I have seen these checks, and I've seen these checks through my mother. She's shown me these checks that Michael had written to these children, and it's for a great amount. And I'm not speaking pennies. I never want to say anything about it, but I think it's sad because I am a victim myself, and I know what it feels like. And these kids are going to be scarred for the rest of their life. The following day, LaToya appeared on the Today Show in a long and emotionally fraught split-screen interview with Katie Couric. My mother is very much aware of all the children that were there, all the boys that stayed there, and she is the one who always said that Michael, excuse my expression, but he's a faggot, and she would say that damn faggot, I can't stand him. And that's what she would say all the time, and she knows it, and now she's denying it, and that's what hurt. You claim that the reason your, your, uh, your mom is siding with Michael is because your parents and the rest of your family are afraid that they'll be cut off financially from him. He supports every last one of them. Jermaine lives in that house, his children lives in that house, everybody lives there, he supports them. Your mom also said that she thought your husband uh, was a con man and a thug and, and accused him of beating and brainwashing you and basically your folks say you're just out for publicity. Latoya's husband at the time, Jack Gordon, was, by a number of accounts, an abusive man who had been reported in multiple sources as attacking her and beating her within an inch of her life. In response to LaToya's appearances, her family, whom she had been estranged from, told the LA Times that she was lying, hoping to get attention, profiteering, and had been brainwashed in the clutches of a greedy husband. According to LaToya in later years, particularly in her 2011 book, Starting Over, Gordon was the one who forced her to make the appearances, and later appear in Playboy with a snake wrapped around her naked body, and to start a psychic network. She also recanted her accusations against Michael Jackson and her family, saying that Gordon had influenced her to say all of those things. Regardless of the legitimacy of LaToya's TV appearances, they did damage to her brother Michael. As the media scrambled for Jackson's whereabouts, his legal and PR team worked overtime with the fallout from his tour cancellation, getting dropped by his Pepsi sponsorship and the seeming eminence of a criminal indictment. Meanwhile, Michael Jackson was at the Charter Nightingale Clinic in London. On his first night at the facility, according to biographer Tara Borelli, Jackson asked other patients if there was a secret way out. There was not. Outside, he could control events and draw upon his wealth and fame. Here, he was just another drug addict. Neverland had servants, statues, butlers, maids, and even its own fireman, 
Jackson was surrounded by lawyers most of his adult life. He took advice from a PR team and depended on personal assistance for any whim. But now, at the Nightingale Clinic, Michael Jackson did something he hadn't done since he was a small child in Gary, Indiana. He mopped the floors. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates. Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer. And production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music. Special thanks to the good people at the Los Angeles County Bar Association for their permission to use extensive clips for this episode. LACBA serves attorneys, judges, and other legal professionals through committees, networking events, and pro bono opportunities, as well as public service and informational resources. You can find out more about the good work they do at lacba.org.